Hello and welcome to Read All About It. I'm Nuri Vitacci and my co-host is Marshall Moore. This is the second series of Read All About It and uh, our format stays the same. Uh, I bring a book that I've read recently and uh, Marshall does the same. We'll discuss them and then we'll talk about a, a classic that you might like to read or reread if you've been very naughty and haven't read it as a kid. Okay, I've got a debut novel uh, this time. It's called Three Junes by Julia Glass. Three Junes as in the month of June, or I guess it's a, it's a girl's name too, isn't it? Uh, it's a very unusual book. Um, it, uh, it was launched in uh, 2002, but became a, a series. Uh, and uh, I believe the latest one came out quite recently. And uh, so it's so it's kind of uh, it's, it's kind of recent in that way. But I'm going to talk about the first in the series. Uh, uh, Three Junes really burst onto the market um, out of nowhere and uh, and shocked and surprised everybody because it was so good. And it came from a completely unknown writer. Uh, Julia Glass was the sort of artist that you think is a, you know, it's a typical artistic disaster, really. Uh, just a, she's um, she's living in a tiny flat, uh, doing some painting and uh, doing some freelance editing. It's basically the sort of thing that artistic people do. It's uh, it's it's difficult to make a living uh, being artistic in that way. And she's sort of moseying along, and then suddenly she writes a novel, and pow. Critics love it, and it wins the the National uh, Book Prize uh, in America, the National Book Award, and it's up against really big competition. Like um, that was the year the Lovely Bones, uh, Alice Seabold, came out, and uh, suddenly this completely unknown writer uh, wins this massive award. Did she deserve this massive award? Uh, yes, and in fact, the critics were baffled as to how she could have written such an amazing book without any sort of previous uh, uh, knowledge of, of writing novels. She'd written short stories before, but she hadn't come to anybody's attention at all before this. What would you say set her apart from the other books, or the other the other fantastic books that didn't win? One of the things is that she uh, reinvented the structure of the of the novel and you can only do that really if you're very very confident uh, a novel generally has a main character which runs from the beginning to the end but this is three short stories um and the main character it, it, one is one it's a, it's a family one one the first story is about the father second story is about the son and the third story is about someone who knows the father and the son but what's missing is the mother and the story is all about the mother. It's about a character who doesn't really appear in the novel, except from uh, sideways glances. And it's an extraordinary thing to do. And in fact, I can't think of a, another novel where the main character is actually missing from the novel. Um, it's a very brave thing to do. And uh, I think that's what uh, set it apart. But let me just say uh, something about the plot. We start off meeting a, an old uh, Scottish man named Paul who's on holiday uh, on a Greek island. And the, the other members of his, 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 uh, his party uh, eventually discover that he's there because his wife has just died. And he's sort of recovering, convalescing from this, this, uh, this terrible uh, occurrence, his bereavement. And uh, he gradually uh, gets to know the other holiday makers and uh, they learn more about his, his family situation. Um, we learn a little about his wife through his, his memories and through what he tells others uh, about him, about her. And so it's a very calm, low level, no drama, no excitement, no shooting, no bad guys, no 
helicopters, no explosions type story. And the delight really is the uh, the skill of the author in um, creating someone you feel you really know. So you don't need the helicopters, you don't need the explosions. You're sitting there thinking, you know, you pick it up again, you think, oh, that guy Paul, I wonder how he's doing. And it's like seeing an old friend. Um, uh, and that's the, that's the thrill of a, a great novelist. Uh, so, um, so it's a, it's a it's a three part book, and the first part is is Paul on this holiday. the uh, The second part of the book is um, uh, a young gay man who is uh, dealing with his mother's death, and you realise, oh, the mother is the same mother as the same woman that the uh, the first person was uh, was concerned with, and so we get the, a similar story, but from a, a different point of view. And then the third part is uh, a, a different point of view again. Um, all these happen during the summer, so uh, that's why the book is called Three Junes. We're talking about Three Junes by Julia Glass. And uh, so you have to put all these three separate stories together, and what uh, appears is the story of a, of a single family at the end. What that reminds me of is the work of David Mitchell, because he uses the same structure or the same approach to his novels, where they're Typically, like each novel is a series of interlocking stories where the characters overlap or it's the same story told over a period of time from different characters' points of view, sometimes years and years and years apart. So is that the kind of thing she's doing here or is it a lot more self-contained? Uh, yes, yeah, so that's a good point. Uh, yeah, David Mitchell, a wonderful author who wrote uh, most famous for Cloud Atlas, I guess, or maybe The Bone Clocks now. Um, but uh, yes, sometimes his stories are set centuries apart, aren't right. they? And yet they all uh, interlink. And uh, he's a bit more sci-fi, whereas this one, this uh, uh, Judy Glass is much more. Um, uh, it's about real people, uh, and in fact, it's almost impossible to believe that these characters are not real people. You think, okay, these have got to be based on herself and her friends or something, because they are just uh, uh, so realistic. Um, I think what made it magical, though, or what made uh, the critics uh, adore it so much, not so much the public, it never got into the New York uh, Times bestseller list or anything, uh, is, the, is, the, uh, is, the, is the skill she has in, uh, in just making something uh, real that's important to us. Because we find that all the characters have had some heartbreak or some, some terrible thing happen in their lives and yet have got over it. And it's that getting over it that fascinates the author and ends up fascinating the reader because we think, actually, that's true. You know, we've all had these dreadful things happen to us and we get over them. So um, the first story, a, a man being bereaved of the wife you know, he lived with for decades, that's a very obvious heartbreak that he has to get over. But the, the next two are much more complex um the 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 son of the uh, of the dead woman he has a very complicated uh a, a life to deal with uh he's first he's changed country he's moved from scotland to the us um also he he's he's gay he's got a very good best friend uh and he's got a lover but the lover never manages to make himself the best friend and the best friend never becomes the lover so she's he's He's trying to make a settled life out of these very disparate elements, and uh, and he's struggling to do that. So we've got we've got his problem as well. So we've got all these different elements uh, working together. 
One thing that makes me wonder about is you mentioned the importance of getting over trauma in these stories, but what does that look like? And the reason I ask is because we talk a lot about getting over bad things, but I don't think people always really have a consistent, clear idea of what getting over means. So in this story, what does getting over these things mean? Like, what does it look like? Right, that's a good point. Um, yeah, getting over implies that you've solved the problem, but of course you never do solve the problem. It's there. Uh, I suppose getting over is really, in real life, it's it's continuing despite the, the trauma, which is, you know, tucked into your background and, and informs the shape of the rest of your life. Um, but you know, it doesn't disappear, uh, but doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily shape the rest of your life. I tend to think that we all know what getting over it means, but just exactly like if you had to explain it, how would that be? Myself, I tend to think of it as maybe you've had something really bad happen to you, but you're no longer driven by it in the same way. You're no longer making decisions from your emotions and you're able to make more rational ones after this. You don't forget, but you're not as compelled by it as you used to be. That's right. That's right. I think by by taking that experience, in taking the the good out of it, uh, rather than uh, than letting it sit there as a, as a as an evil thing, as a monkey on your back, as, as a burden. We're talking about Three Junes by Julia Glass. Uh, it's a very literary novel in three parts. She calls it a triptych rather than a trilogy because um, in each uh, there are elements that um, are very different from the from the others. So it's not it's not three stories about the same person, but three separate stories that all uh, interlink. Um, it, uh, it won the um, the American Book Award in two thousand and two and turned into a, a series. So there's more books uh, with the same characters coming along later. If you enjoy this first in the series, and who would you say would enjoy this book? Well, it would be classified as a woman's novel. Uh, we both hate the phrase uh, chick lit. Um, but because it's about relationship and there are no uh, explosions and helicopters in it, that's the category it would fall in. Really, it's literary fiction. So, Nuri, it looks like our books have something in common. We're both talking about debut novels this week. That's interesting. Mine is Illustrado by Miguel Cejuco. This is a book that, like yours, kind of came out of nowhere, made a big splash, was discussed a lot. And one of the things I found interesting about it is the amount of discussion it actually provoked because one thing i think we've we've both noticed with literature is that the culture of discussion isn't always there as much as it used to be with books and this one definitely got talked about when it came out so this won the man asian literary prize back in 2008 and that was two years before it was published in 2010 um, it was a really big deal when it was published. It was translated into a bunch of languages. Um, it was really, really controversial in Miguel's native Philippines. Um, I should disclaim for our listeners, uh, we both have met Miguel, so um, he swings through Hong Kong every now and then, so it's kind of hard to miss him. In any event, Illustrado is interesting and weird and complicated and it's just this rollicking read and when you get to the end of it it's absolutely wrenching once you realize what he's done with it 
Yeah, rollicking is a really interesting word. I know Miguel's a very a fiery, interesting political character. But, uh, but tell us more. So what's the story about? Well, it's about a guy named Miguel Cejuco, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, the author named his main character after himself, which raises all kinds of questions about the extent to which this is fiction and this is autobiographical and what is this exactly. So it starts out with our fictional Miguel Cejuco. Um, he's writing a biography of a very famous, important literary figure from the Philippines, a man named Crispin Salvador, who's had a long literary career. He's written important books in the Philippines. And so during the course of this attempt at writing the, uh, the memoir, uh, Crispin turns up dead in the Hudson in New York, where he's been living. And so he had supposedly been working on a new manuscript. Um, the problem is the manuscript went missing as well. And so this is a big deal. And our fictional Miguel takes it upon himself to track this missing manuscript down. And in the course of searching for it, he leaves New York and goes back to the Philippines. Um, and in the process of writing all of this, it's partly about his search. In some ways, it's almost like a detective story because he's trying to figure out where the book went and what happened to Crispin Salvador. Why did the man turn up dead? Was he murdered? Did he commit suicide? Uh, but then there are multiple layers to it because it's almost like this cultural, historical examination of different forces and social movements and events in the Philippines that led up to this man's career and why he was so important and how he's still being discussed. So the book takes the form of everything from journals to straight up exposition to discussions from message boards online. And in a way, it, it becomes like you're reading something so much bigger than a novel because it's almost like a really high-level view of life in the Philippines, but a really intimate look at it at the same time. It's very, it's very unusually. It's like he's uh, thrown in a, um, a lot of, uh, of very realistic things. That the, the gap between realism and fiction is very much blurred, isn't it? Because of all these different elements, uh, portions from from writings of the uh, of the characters, uh, fascinating. And how, how does this all, all come to a to climax? Uh, you know, it starts with a dead body, doesn't it? Right. Well, that the big issue is that it's like the book I was talking about last week. I can't give away the ending because it's so important to what the book is. But you literally have to get to the last couple of pages, and then all of a sudden it comes together in a way that you don't see coming. What I would say, though, is to me, this is almost like, in a way, it's the archetypal first novel by a really talented writer who's put his whole life into this book. Um, it's just because Miguel is from a real life Miguel, not fictional Miguel, but real life Miguel is from a political family in the Philippines. So he's very well educated, very aware, very informed of everything going on in the country, politics in the global sense. And he's put everything in this book. So it really does feel like almost a personal guided tour through the country and through its history and how it got to where it is and why this particular literary figure was so important. 
Um, he's a he's a political figure himself. Uh, I mean, two questions spring to mind. Uh, uh, first, is he exercising his demons from his background? Uh, and second, you know, what sort of reaction did uh, this get? This strange, this strange uh, uh, book full of mixed elements and formats. As far as the demons are concerned, I think he probably was. I mean, he writes of really personal things, relationships not working out, uh, returning to a childhood home. And just from the standpoint of being an author who's written a first novel myself and thrown in everything in the kitchen sink, I do think that the first book is where you really do work out some of the things that you've been grappling with all your life. When I read it, to me, I saw the same things going on. And when I've read other debut novels, I, I see the same kind of pattern. He hasn't published his second novel yet. I, I believe there's one in the works, but I, it hasn't made an appearance yet. So this is like the first novel where he's said everything that he's been wanting to say all of his life. And uh, I know it got uh, it got rave reviews, and it got, also got um, got some stick, didn't it? It did. It did. I know that there some of the criticism leveled at it was how it was a Filipino writer writing a book about the Philippines for non-Filipino readers. Um, so some of the complaints were about representation. Right. He doesn't live in the Philippines now, does he? He's, I think right. he's lived for some years. Yeah, right. He was, he was in Australia when he wrote it, and then he was in Montreal when he finished it, if I remember correctly, and now he's in Abu Dhabi. So I was just talking about the issue of representation and how I think that was behind some of the negative comments, some of the bad reviews that the book got. I noticed that sometimes when a novel, and this has also happened with my own work, people don't always like it when you don't represent them the way they want to be represented. And so that raises this really interesting question of what's the writer's responsibility? Is it to write the story that's true to them, that says what they want to say? Or are you supposed to magically get inside random readers' heads and speak to their truth? Um, I had Personally, I think he was writing the story he needed to tell, and I don't think he needed to be more or less Filipino for the benefit of anyone else there who didn't like the book. Um, I think it spoke to a really global readership, and I think that it's a country with a real literary heritage, with a really interesting history, a really complicated history, and there's so much there that it's, and it's just a good book in its own right. Can we tie it into the interesting events that's happening in the in the Philippines now? Of course, we have uh, we have Duterte, this very tough, rough uh, new leader who's uh, who's uh, admitted to, to shooting people dead himself on the street. You know, suspects uh, as it's called. Um, so, what does it tell us about the current situation? Well, how much does it actually have to tell us? Um, it did come out about, what was it, 2010? He wrote it back in the mid part of the last decade. So I think the best answer I can give to that is you can probably see him laying the groundwork. You know, if you're reading the book and you come to it with no background knowledge about the country, the whole situation there does begin to make a bit more sense. So once again, that was Illustrado by Miguel Sehuco.
And now we come to the third part of today's programme, and that's the part where we discuss a, a classic. And uh, I'm really happy about our choice uh, today. We're talking about Howard's End uh, by E.M. Forster. It's a good choice. It's wonderful. It was a, a book written in uh, 1910, uh, but I think, I don't know, it was very revolutionary when it came out at that time. And uh, it, was a, it was revolutionary for me as well. It ch- changed my life, I think. When did you first read it? I well, I can't even remember. I went through a Forster phase. I think for me, the one that got me interested in him was Morris, uh, the gay one. And then at some point, I wandered through the rest of his books. Also, back in the nineties, was it was it when Merchant Ivory was doing all the films, and a new one would come out based on one of Forster's novels, and it was always just gorgeous and pretty and very English and so different from where I was growing up in the U.S. Right. It's a wonderful book, but um, it's a, very much a book of its time. So this is 1910, so we've just passed the Victorian era. And, uh, you know, the, the books of those that era, the, the Dickens and, uh, you know, H.G. Wells, um, full of coincidences and drama and melodrama, all good stuff. Uh, but uh, but not realistic. And then suddenly Howard's End comes out in 1910 and it does include uh, love and death and melodrama and um, and all these elements, but it's also completely different. It's, the, it's one of the first great novels of the modern era in that uh, even though you still have the coincidences and things that we see in the uh, Victorian novels, um, the whole tone is different. Um, the uh, The the sort of cardboardy uh, uh, way the characters were drawn in the Victorian days with sort of evil Fagin bad guys and, and goody-goody Oliver Twists is all gone. And um, uh, E.M. Forster in Howard's End draws this complex picture of of different classes uh, negotiating with, with each other uh, through conversations and negotiations. So why don't I just give a quick overview of what Howard's End is about, because I bet there are one or two people who haven't actually read it yet or seen the movie. You have a treat coming. It's, it is so interesting. Um, it, generally speaking, it's about the intersections of three families at this particular point in English history. Uh, Howard's End is the namesake Stately House because it's a novel from that particular time in history, so there has to be a stately pile involved. Um, so there are the Wilcoxes who are an upper-class, industrialist, conservative English family. And then there are the Schlegels, uh, two sisters who have a German background. They're also upper-class, but perhaps not quite as well-off. And they're a little bit more free-spirited. Uh, they've been living in England. They've, I believe they're half English, actually, half German, something like that. So they're a little bit more free-spirited. I think they're more meant to represent the coming of the modern age because they're interested in things like women's suffrage um, and like progressive causes and the betterment of society, whereas the Wilcoxes were English snobs. And then there are the Basts, who are at the very bottom end of the working class, lower middle class, so they're financially struggling. And it's full. It's one of those plots that's full of the kind of contrivance you were talking about, where people meet, they fall in love, they fall out of love, they get engaged, they get unengaged, somebody dies, there's drama. 
Um, but the beautiful part is that Forster just sells it and you completely believe it as you're reading it. So it doesn't have that kind of cardboard characters being pushed around thing like you'd see in the Victorian novels. Mm. It also has a very uh, appealing sort of main character. I think that the, the, the character that, that runs through the whole novel is, is this woman, Margaret Schlegel, and she's from a wealthy background. But when she meets the, the Wilcoxes, the, the genuinely rich Wilcoxes, then you see there's a difference. And really, uh, in a way, I guess um, the book could be seen as the rise of the, the liberal mind uh, because she sees wealth, but she doesn't respect it in the same way that the rich do. She sees the poor people, the poor, the Bast family, who are very poor, uh, but she doesn't despise them or look down upon them. And so she's struggling all the time. She's part of the wealthy classes, but she's also angry with the wealthy classes. She's part. She's she. Her heart is with the poor people, but she's. How can she help them if she abandons her money and and goes to help them? So there's all this complexity. And it's really the heartache that Margaret feels uh, as she tries to sort out this uh, this dispute between these families that uh, that drives the novel along and drives the reader along because we think, okay, what is Margaret going to do now? Right. She really is such an interesting character because you see her going through this struggle. And as you said, you see it taking place just in the conversations. It reminds me a lot of when we were talking about um, Kazuo Ishiguro in last week's program because he was doing something very similar and you know people are very constrained by their role in society what they're allowed to say what they're allowed to do what their options are so you see a real continuation from Forster to Ishiguro in the sense of how they're writing about these different periods of time but in a way they're doing the same thing and there's this one really great moment in the book where she's resolving to be less kind to the servants after being told, why would you be kind to them? They won't understand it anyway. And so you see her going through this really naive thought process of reconsidering her values and like asking herself what's really important to her. And it's surprisingly interesting, actually, because he's a good enough writer that he can actually make you invest and care. That's right. And the, the, uh, the, the most important words in the book, he said himself, were only connect. And uh, I think we've got all these um, social pressures and different classes and some with money and some without, some with conservative attitudes, some with literal at liberal attitudes. And yet it's just that making that connection that's all important. So thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us. Uh, we have been talking about Three Junes by Julia Glass. Illustrado by Miguel Cejuco and Howard's End by E.M. Forster. Thank you and see you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>